topic today is uh, your first of what I gather will be a number of different discussions about cyber and the cyber realm. Uh, and so when I come and do this, my goal is to really introduce you to the realm, give you some of the background, talk a little bit about what makes it different, why it's the same, put, um, put down some framework perspective for what I gather are gonna be more detailed discussions about uh, you know, applications of LOAC in the, in the cyber domain, that sort of thing. Um, we'll be happy to get into that, but you know, as well, but this is intended as basically an intro uh, to the domain itself. Uh, my, I tend to talk very fast, and, uh, but I am happy to stop, slow down if you have questions. Uh, unlike most law professors, I appreciate being interrupted. So, so go ahead, do that if I, if I pass by something and you want to ask a question. There will be time, I'm sure, for Q&A at the end in any event. So uh, this, is, uh, this is my favorite kind of uh, picture about cyber domain. You know, I, I just have this idea, you know, where I was behind a Chinese fireball with bots to the left and Trojans to the right of me, you know, telling your kid the stories. Um, in some ways, it's a joke, right? This is the new domain and then this is a joke. But in some ways, it actually captures at least part of the problem, uh, which is to say uh, one of the big fights that was happening at DOD, maybe it's going to come back, is whether or not cyber warriors could get medals uh, for valor. Uh, because the idea behind medals for valor, of course, was you know bravery on the field of battle, putting your life at risk. And and this guy, you know, he's got his medals, but he, if he was really a cyber warrior, he's back, you know, six hundred, a thousand miles behind the lines, not really at risk. So, in some ways, this this cartoon captures a really interesting problem with, about the domain, which is that it actually changes the nature of, of warfare in a lot of ways. Uh, a little bit like drone drone pilots who are who are sitting at Nellis Air Force Base and their drones are over Afghanistan, and do they get medals? So those are kind of concepts that, that lie behind this pretty cool little, little cartoon, but mostly it's just a joke. So here's my, here's my goal for today. I'm gonna to talk to you a little bit about what the battle space is, define it for you, uh, then kind of define the threat, talk about uh, uh, conflicts uh, in today, what they look like, and then uh, my goal, as I said, is to introduce this for uh, the there are more lectures I gather tomorrow. Uh, I, I couldn't make it tomorrow, so usually they stack us all, so we'll have to have a, a day to think about this. So, part one, defining the battle space. Uh, Toto, we're not in Kansas anymore. Uh, it's different, uh, it really is, and I wanna give you a little bit of a sense of why. Um, first, I want you to think back to uh, 1992, right? Uh, I, is there anybody in the room who wasn't alive in 92? Uh, except for a couple of you. Yeah, uh, you, okay. For those of you who weren't alive, think about your parents, right? But for those of you who were, you know, think about yourself. Uh, you were a younger version of yourself. If you were like me, you had more hair, right? Um, maybe you weren't married, and now you're married and have kids, right? But the person you were, or the person that your parents were in 92, is really the same person that they are right now. Uh, you know, evolved a little bit, grayer, a little more intelligent, a little more experienced, a little slower around the, around the baseball diamond, that sort of thing, right? And the same is true uh, in uh, the kinetic world, uh, what the hackers call meat space, which is the space of the world that you and I live in. Uh, you know, I drove down here in a, uh, in a Lexus car, uh, it has a little hybrid motor in it, but it's still got a gas engine, and that gas engine uses the exact same technology 
uh, in principle as the cars from 1992, in fact, as the cars from you know, 1922, right? The combustion engine has grown more efficient, but it hasn't changed. And that's true of much of our technology. It evolves without uh, changing over much. And if you really want a great concept of, of that, think back to 1992, and uh, a guy named Clinton ran for president in the United States that year. Right? And just last, a year and a half ago, uh, his wife, a lady named Clinton, ran. And, and there was a Bush running, too. You know, so society changes, too. So if you and I were to discuss the nature of meat space, the kinetic world that we live in, it would be a story of evolutionary change. Sometimes you know, major uh, new things like the invention of the air, uh, airplane. But by and large, the world changes on a very slow pace. Not true in our domain. Not true in cyberspace. In 1992, the US government bought this. It was the Cray XMP1 supercomputer. It cost about $25 million, which in today's American dollars would be something like 70-ish, depends upon your inflation factor, right? And at that time, it was the biggest, the bestest, <coughs> the fastest supercomputer in the world. In fact, it was the only one. So it was a great power advantage for the United States in the same way that nuclear weapons were. Yeah, they were ours, we had them, and, uh, and nobody else did. And you can see it's actually quite large. The, the scale is shown by the, 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 man, the man suit on the side. It's more than six feet tall, six feet wide, big, big sucker. And it was super fast. And we gave it the hardest problems we could think about in terms of computing. The very first problem it worked on was models for nuclear weapons explosions. The second was the very first models for climate change. Really complex problems. So this is 1992, right? And this is a unique American superpower advantage. Fast forward to today. How many of you own one of these? Raise your hand. Raise your hand. Everybody has one. Everybody in the room has one. If you own an Apple iPhone 6 or better, or a Samsung Galaxy S6 or better, you have more computing power in the palm of your hand than the Cray XMP1 supercomputer. This is faster. If I knew how to do the math, I could program it to do mathematical models of nuclear weapons or climate change. I don't know the math, so there you go. I can't do it. But that's not evolutionary. That's revolutionary. This is what we call the democratization of information power. It's the idea that something that just a year ago, I mean just a generation ago, was a unique superpower advantage, unique to the United States, is now, by and large, in the hands of anybody who can afford 500 bucks. And if you buy more, if you're willing to spend 5,000 or 50,000, you can get uh, information processing power that's orders of magnitude better than the best thing that the United States alone had years ago. This is why, this is why uh, 10 guys from North Korea, uh, who are in the news now again, but, but uh, three years ago could take down a giant American company, Sony, and almost destroy it because they had that kind of power at their fingertips. That's an evulsive change in conflict space because all of a sudden, you know, it would be as if everybody could have a nuclear weapon, right? Uh, it's all of a sudden a change in who has the capability to do violence, information violence in this case, but as we'll see, information has real world consequences, and it's an evulsive change on when and how that can be deployed. To give you the best idea of this, this is kind of my favorite. 
this is the Radio Shack ad from our president's day. Radio Shack is a company that in the United States used to sell electronics, um, cheap electronics. And uh, everything on there, everything except the radar detector in the middle, uh, is now an app on your phone. Uh, right? Uh, you got your calculator, you got your video, you got your audio. And my favorite is this guy in the center, the Tandy supercomputer, right? Uh, for $1,500, $1,599, with, now wait for this, the then unheard of 20 megabytes of hard drive. <laughs> 20 megabytes of hard drive. Uh, if you stream movies, right, that's enough for the first 10 seconds, more or less, of, of, of a modern movie. This is the model I want you to think of, is that the time scale of change here is so much more rapid that we have revolutionized the deployment of power. There's another piece to this puzzle that also changes the battle space. This is the internet in 1973. It was a map of the internet, hand, I mean literally, you know, not hand drawn, but drawn at the time. There were, uh, I counted them up, I think it's 36 nodes on the network. And that was it. That was all of the network in 1973 when it was great. This little jagged line here on the left from Ames, Iowa to Hawaii, that's the first internet connection that didn't go by wire. That was a satellite connection up and over, right? Because they didn't have any, any landlines to go out to anyone. All the rest of these people, you see them all. There's, you know, USC and UC Santa Barbara, right? Uh, you know, they're all, they were all academic institutions. So this is the network. That limited connectivity, you knew everybody on the network. The other thing that has changed is this. This is the internet today. Actually, this is the internet about seven or eight years ago when this map was drawn. So hard to draw that they don't do it all the time. But a company called Optium spent a year sending pings around the network to try and draw a map of the network. And this is what they got back. Um, the colors, by the way, mean nothing. Right? They were added so that it wouldn't all be white lines, just to give it some false sense of color. But for obvious reasons, this has come to be called the famous peacock map. This looks just like the peacock, right? Um, so what is this map of? Well, the white spots are the hot spots where high-level domain servers move a lot of traffic. But as you can see, there's lots of them. There's no real center to this, right? The other thing you can see is there's no border here. There's no map. I cannot tell you which parts of these are China, which parts of these are the United States, where's Canada, where's Japan, where's Brazil. You know, they're all on there somewhere, but the connections don't necessarily respect what we have come to think of as nation-state borders. So think of that. The fundamental precept of, I would say, international law, and certainly the law of war, um, since at least the Peace of Westphalia, is the idea of nation-states and borders and sovereignty and control. It's gone. We don't have it anymore. It's, it's gone the way of the dodo. In fact, if I were to characterize what's happening in the world today, very broadly speaking, it's that realization is finally coming home to nation states in about the last 10 years. And they're rushing to reassert control, to domesticate the data, to impose data localization rules, to erect firewalls, to keep out uh, conflicting information from other countries, whatever it is, they're rushing to reestablish na nation-state sovereignty in a domain that is basically not built for that. So everything that is involved in that is a bit of a clutch.
is a bit of an add-on, a bolt-on, that comes in after the fact. So if I could give you uh, two kind of concepts about this that you should take away, the first is rapidity of, uh, of development and change, and the second is pervasiveness of connectivity. To understand that last point, let me tell you one small story. Everything is on that network. If it has a programmable chip that is addressable, that, it, that is, can be addressed, it's somewhere on this network. So that's not just web domains and internet sites and email. That's the elevator that brought us up here, uh, right? Which is, a, I, I checked it on the way up. It's 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 a it's a internet enabled uh, elevator, and that's a great thing. Huge uptick in in efficiency. If it breaks, they don't have to call the engineer. They just send him an, a text. He uh, he accesses the system, and if he can reboot and fix it without coming up, great. If he needs to come out, he knows exactly what part is on there. So everything is on the network. But here's <coughs> the important rule. And if you take only one rule from me, take this one. If it's addressable, it's hackable. Period. Full stop, end of story. I can do lots to mitigate risk. I can do lots to reduce risk. Uh, I can do lots to uh, make things safer. But I cannot eliminate the risk other than by getting off the network altogether. Any Air Force people here? Right? The Air Force just recently decided to maintain some of the systems that control the US nuclear missiles in analog, precisely because they were afraid that if they put it on the network in digital, they would all be vulnerable. Most of it's on digital, but they kept a couple of, of our missiles on analog because they wanted to be sure that the president could launch them, or to be sure that the uh, Russians couldn't order them to launch when they weren't supposed to be launched. I mean, that's kind of remarkable when you think about it. So here's a story. Uh, I have a friend named David, David Metcalf. He's a retired uh, bartender, really nice guy. He has um, insulin problems, and he's had it for all of his life. So he, he, when he first started, he would stick his finger and do the blood test and then inject himself with insulin. About 15 years ago, he got himself an insulin pump that hangs on his, on his belt and ties into his blood vein and measures his blood and then pumps in the insulin. About five years ago, he got a really cool thing, an internet-connected and enabled insulin pump. So he could read the data on him on his on his uh, iPhone or his iPad and he could send it to his doctor. So his doctor didn't even have to have him come in. The doctor could look and say, ah, uh, you're doing fine. Let's cut your dosage by two. Right? That it, it was life-changing. David loves it. Right? Two years ago, at a hacker convention in Las Vegas called DEFCON, the military people will appreciate the, the sly reference, called DEFCON, two white hat researchers demonstrated that they could crack the security on David's Medtronic's insulin pump and at a distance, without coming anywhere near him, order it to give him a fatal overdose of insulin. So David now has this life-changing thing on his hip that is also his own personal assassination device. And that's the reality of this domain. Now, when I told David this, he actually, even though he's a bartender, he did a risk analysis. He didn't really know what he was doing. But he said, first of all, who would want to kill me, right? Which was a threat analysis. There's nobody who wants to kill me, so it's not a problem. I'm, I'm not like in the, you know, the, the, the Argentines don't want to kill me or anything like that. And then he did a vulnerability analysis. He said, and if it was my wife, Stevie, she'd just poison the soup rather than go into all this trouble, right? So that was a vulnerability analysis. I'm more vulnerable to poisoning by soup. So, but 
Everything's on this network, and everything's vulnerable, and at least theoretically, if Stevie didn't want to be caught poisoning him, she could uh, <laughs> hack into the security and force it to give him a fatal overdose of insulin. Uh, so there you go. Uh, this domain is massive and getting larger, right? How many of you have a terabyte hard drive, right? An external terabyte hard drive? That's this little dot right here, right? Uh, in 2010, so eight years ago now, for the first time, the world created a zettabyte of data in a year. A zettabyte is uh, a one followed by all those zeros up at the top. It's a billion terabytes of, of data. And a terabyte is a thousand gigabytes, and so you can get the ideas. How big is a zettabyte of data? We struggle, right? We struggle with really big numbers. So here's the best way I know. If you start over here, with the very first time that data was ever created by human beings, which we think was a, a cave painting in the caves of Lascaux in France, where somebody wrote a, drew a mastodon on the caves. That's the first one we know of. It's about 15,000 BC, more or less. If you go from there all the way up here to 2005, so, you know, Jesus, the pharaohs, the Great Wall of China, the Renaissance, the Reformation, uh, yeah, uh, World War I, World War II, TV, audio, video, 2005, that's a zettabyte of data. From 1500, 15,000 BC to now, a zettabyte. And we reproduce that now every year. A lot of the data is meaningless, right? Uh, but uh, it's silly cat videos and Miley Cyrus and all that sort of stuff. But it's a huge thing. So think of it this way. For the, you know, this is a national security law uh, quote. Imagine if the Pacific Ocean we're getting bigger every year, and you still have to defend it <laughs> you know, without more resources. And it's getting worse, of course. Uh, by 2020, we're going to be doing 35 zettabytes of new data every year. Right? So, so it, that'll be from like 1500 to like, I don't know when, uh, 1900. So it's amazingly huge amount of data being produced, all of it creating vulnerabilities all of it requiring defense, if you will, in depth by military planners. At the same time that it is that large, it's also impossibly intimate. I went on a trip uh, to uh, Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos a couple of years ago. Uh, and I went up the Mekong River, past the last town of Luang Prabang. Um, so this is the same river. Anybody see Apocalypse Now? Right? This is the Mekong River, or read uh, uh, Heart of Darkness by uh, by uh, James, uh, Joseph Conrad. Right? The metaphor of going up the river is like getting away from civilization as far as you can go. And I got away. I went up past the Wang Banks uh, to the little town of Pakbawi, where there was supposed to be a Buddhist shrine that you had to go see. By the way, if you get the opportunity, skip the trip. Not worth it. Definitely, <laughs> definitely not worth it. But there I was in Pakbawi, 150 people, subsistence farming, squat toilets, and the sewage system was literally running the, the sewage into the Mekong River and then down and out into the ocean uh, a thousand miles away. And this is their internet web access point, right? I navigated from there to the web page of the course I teach at GW, uh, George Washington, um, right? And it was slow, right? You know, they, they didn't have the same you know, uh, uh, Fios line that we have here, but I could access the case. If we were doing a video of this class, uh, they could access it live and in real time. So the people of Pakbawi 
are proximate to us in this space in a way that is completely different from the physical domain. As um, uh, uh, Dan Gear, who's the CISO for InQtel, uh, CISO, Chief Information Security Officer. InQtel is, is the uh, uh, intelligence community's uh, 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 venture capital firm that tries to invest in new technology. So he's, he knows what he's talking about. He says, it's as if every sociopath in the world were your next door neighbor. Right? And, and, and that's right. The people of Pakbawi might as well be in this room because metaphor, not just metaphorically, but in practice, they can have effects in this room. Uh, we have, can try and stop them, but there is no logical space. The distance, it, it disappears. It goes at the speed of light. Uh, and so, you know, even the nuclear missiles that we thought Russia would send were going to take 33 minutes to get here. The attack from Pakbawi or from North Korea or from Russia or from China or from wherever takes 33 milliseconds, if not less. So that means a lot for human decision making as well. Where we can't be in the loop anymore because there's no time for any human being to react. And that's a transformation, right? All of a sudden, the military commander has to have pre planned answers to everything because reacting on the scene is, uh, by the time he figures it out, game's over. So let's do a little bit more data. This is from last year because uh, uh, we don't have 2018 yet, right? Uh, how many people are there? tied to this battle space? The answer is more than three and a half billion. Roughly 60%, 50% of the world's population has direct access to the network today. So now you're, you're getting a sense of who, uh, who we have to act on. It's not like there's a 300 ship navy that you have to deal with. It's three and a half billion actors. How many things? We talked about the elevator. We talked about the car. We talked about David's Medtronic's device. More than a trillion. Nobody knows, because we're doing adding ones every day. So there are more than a trillion vectors of attack, right? The, uh, uh, what are they called? Nest is a climate control system. Uh, there's a word. What? Thermostat, thank you. Thank you. The thermostat is now connected to the network. So is your refrigerator. Now. They're not going to ruin your, uh, the only thing they can do with the refrigerator is make it too hot and ruin your food. But it's also a hot spot to someplace else on your home network, right? How many transistors do we make annually? This was, uh, Dean spoke about the, the, the silicon chips, right? And that we can't test them all, right? Buried in that, buried in each chip are a million or so transistors. How many transistors do we make? Any one of which, if it's Jimmy with, is a threat vector? How many of them are there? 10 quintillion plus. So that's another big number. So how big is it? That's more than the number of grains, not pounds, not bushels, but grains of rice harvested in the world annually. Yeah, each little bit of grain. We make more about 8 quintillion of them, more or less. Nobody has an exact number. So this is a huge space. How powerful the Apple 6? I already did that one. It's faster than the Cray XMP. And how much data do we produce? Today, it's about 20 zettabytes. It'll be 35 in a couple of years, right? One of the other pieces of this that I want you to take away is this is not your telephone network, right? We tend to think of this as an information transmission system, and it is, but it's not like the ones we used to know. 
in back in the old days when we used landlines, how many anybody here never use a landline? Good. Sometimes I, I talk to junior high students and they're like, what's a landline? <laughs> yeah. And so that makes it a little hard to, to do this. But when I talk, when I pick up a landline phone, right, it makes a connection. If I pick up that phone, it makes a connection, right? And if I use that to dial my mother in New York, right, somewhere a computer, uh, the central switching system puts together a, a line that runs from me to her. It may go <coughs> through a satellite if I'm calling her and I'm overseas, but there's a singular connection from me to her. And then I call her up, I say, hello. She says, Paul, you haven't called in so long. Yeah. But, and this is the important thing, there's a hub there. And that means that all of the intelligence, if you will, all of the smarts and all of the control are at that centralized network. Um, and so if you want to, say, wiretap, uh, somebody, you know, uh, an American uh, investigative technique, it's easy. You go to the central place and you put OTAP on and all the traffic is going by. But it also means that everything about the network is controlled from that central place. With the old phone lines, you couldn't just sign up. Somebody, you had to apply for a phone number, remember? And then they give you the phone number and then maybe a technician would actually have to come out and, and hook you up. So somebody had to let you on the network. And that somebody can also throw you off the network if they don't like you. So the old phone networks are fundamentally authoritarian with a small A. Centralized control, centralized rule sets. Right? The cyber network that you and I live in, the one with the picture or in the bottom right or the old one, that's fundamentally decentralized. Right? If I'm going to send a message to Carol, there's no one direct connection between us anymore. Right? My message gets broken up into a thousand different packets. And one of them goes from Rao to Janine to Tom to Carol. Another one goes from Janine, another Janine, okay, to Hannah to Carol. Another one may go from Felix to uh, Kosuke to Carol. And then they all get reassembled. So there's no centralized point where you can intercept that message. There's also no centralized point where you can control my access to the network and stop me from communicating with Carol. In, in addition, if I want to hook up, I don't need anybody's permission. I just have to buy a server, I'll program it using the internet protocols that kind of are the agreed upon methodology for addressing, uh, kind of like you know the re return address is in the top left corner and the zip code is at the bottom. And if I do that, nobody has you know, a, 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 an immediate technical way of stopping me. Most of the ways of stopping me are legal, right? It's illegal to do so unless, sort of thing. But that kind of network where the intelligence is at the edges, at the rim, is fundamental to the uh, innovation of the network. This is how we get all the new apps. Everybody just thinks of an idea. They don't have to get you know, permission from the Department of Commerce. They just hook on, and all of a sudden, we've got Uber worth how many billions? Less now because of the problems, but you know, there you go. Uh, or, or, or somebody wants to put a news source on, whether it's a, a good news source like the New York Times or a bad news source like some alt-right um, uh, thing. Nobody controls the network. There's no centralization for censorship, no centralization for control of any sort. So that network, the one on the bottom, is fundamentally uh, libertarian, democratic, with a small L and a small D. Uh, it, it tends to devolve power down to the masses, down to you and I. 
uh, and no longer retains it as a way of control. So this is, you know, the center hub and spoke networks are efficient, they're affordable, they're easy to kill, you just kill the guy in the center. The other ones, less efficient, less affordable, but much harder to kill. The network that we've just been talking about is embedded in a whole domain that Cyber Command kind of conceives of as this way. We tend to think of the network as this ethereal, non-existent kind of bunch of logic and numbers and ones and zeros going across the network. That's the central blue line. But it's embedded in a whole bunch of other things that are important for lawyers, mostly, uh, but also for warfighters. Uh, for example, every server is in a physical place. And that means that as lawyers, we understand those servers are subject to the jurisdiction of that place. Right? So if the, the server that runs this facility here is in the state of Virginia, so at least the state of Virginia's laws and the United States' laws apply. And if it's processing data from a European, the European Union says that European uh, privacy law applies as well. But each of the laws stem from jurisdictions, stem from physical uh, bordered nations, uh, and servers, even though the network itself doesn't have any borders, the hardware that runs it does exist within that border domain. Second, the network, the, the hardware itself is also part of the domain and also part of the vulnerability. If I were going to cripple the network, I wouldn't use logical means, I wouldn't use a, uh, a virus, I'd probably cut a bunch of underseas cables and cut people off um, from, uh, from the world. One of the reasons that China is efficient at filtering content as it comes into China is that almost all of their data comes in on very large underseas cables that come in off of uh, ones from Japan, ones from the Philippines, and I forget where the third one is coming from. But, uh, but you know, so there are choke points, physical choke points at which data filtering can happen much more efficiently. If you did that, in, if you tried to do that in the United States, you literally could not. When I was at DHS, we tried to count the number of international data connections that the United States was operating, this was, you know, eight, ten years ago, we could not count them. Uh, and so, and, and it's only gotten worse or better, depending upon your perspective, today. So the physical structures are themselves important. And one way to think about that, I don't know if you all remember, but there was a, a giant tsunami in uh, Southeast Asia off the coast of Indonesia about ten years ago. And one of the things that kind of went little remarked was that basically the entire Indonesian, uh, Indonesian country was cut off from the network for four days because the giant undersea cable that was carrying most of their internet traffic broke in the, in the, in the tsunami and the, and the earthquake. So there's a physical structure there that has vulnerability to it that is also part of the network. So down below the logic layer, there's the geography of jurisdiction and then the physicality of machinery. Above it are the devices and the people. Right? How many of you have one of these? Everybody, right? And how many of you have a laptop? Right? And you have probably you may have a, a phone at your home, right? Every one of your devices is a you on the network. Right? So I am not one person on the network. I am at least three devices, and I have seven email addresses. Who has more than one email address? Right? You are all more than one person as far as the network is concerned. And the network doesn't know whether you are, well, yeah, to associate these two or these seven emails uh, naturally, something else has to tell it to, whether it's a, 
a registration system at Google or or an address system like who is that's maintained by uh, the domain name service. You know, you are you are and you can be as many people as you want. And even more importantly, two people can be the same person. My wife and I share a family email address. If you get an email from the family email address, you don't know if it's from me or from her. And I can pretend I'm her, right? And all that's we're not trying to fool anybody. But I've got seven uh, email addresses, at least two of which I share with other people. That fuzzes my identity so that you can't understand who the actors are, what the anonymity. I am functionally anonymous, and I'm not even trying. Right? If I'm trying, if I'm a malicious actor overseas who wants to obscure his or her uh, activity, very, very easy to do. We're getting better at penetrating it, but that all takes time. It takes weeks, months, to do a good attribution to say the attack came from North Korea or the attack came from a criminal gang in Russia. Yeah, so imagine you know, a presidential response to a, a, a cyber incident where the identity of the attacker is indefinite. The nuclear missile is coming over the thing, and the president says, who fired it? And the, and the, uh, and the national security guy says, we're not sure, sir. We think it might have been the Russians, but it also could have been the Chinese. Maybe it was, maybe it was the Romanians. Maybe it was the Israelis trying to make the Chinese look like the Russians. We don't know. That's a problem in this set that is very different from the other world. So, wrap this up. Uh, fundamentals. No natural borders. It allows action at a distance. The people of Pakbao, we are here. It's asymmetric. All of a sudden, with this superpower, super empowered uh, capabilities, you know, 10 guys in North Korea are, 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 are capable of contest with the United States. True story. Um, President Obama famously drew a red line in Syria and then didn't enforce it. Uh, one of the untold stories there was that part of the reason, or maybe part of the reason that he didn't enforce it, he hasn't told me personally, um, is that a group called the Syrian Electronic Army, who uh, open source says is about 15 to 20 uh, really pretty darn good hackers who are affiliated with Bashir Assad's regime, and take direction from it, though they aren't formal military. Uh, they sent a note. They said, basically, if any American troops land in Syria, we will wipe out all the data at the New York Stock Exchange. That's enough to give you pause. Now, I like to think that they were bluffing or that the NSA would have stopped them. But if you fast forward to 2017, just last year, we found Russian code inside the uh, systems of the um, uh, NASDAQ, the other, the other major stock exchange. And it wasn't there to like front run trades and steal money. It looked like it had a destructive purpose where if it was activated, it would wipe out, um, wipe out data. They say it's gone, <laughs> but that makes me happy. But you know, think of the asymmetry there, that all of a sudden a group like the Syrians, who otherwise pose no threat at all, no national security threat of any appreciable measure to the United States, can credibly threaten you know, a critical economic piece of the lifeblood of the United States or any other nation. And you realize that this has changed this. We talked about anonymity. Um, we haven't talked about lack of distinction, so let me just talk about that for 10 seconds. Um, in cyberspace, everything is a one or a zero, right? And that's actually the transistors in the, in the, in the chips, opened, which is a zero, or one, which is closed. And these long strings of ones and zeros open and close 
of the transistors at the speed of light, and then computer programs compile that information and implement them on your laptop. So this strings of ones and zeros gets compiled and it becomes an Excel spreadsheet. This string of ones and zeros becomes your mother's cookie recipe in an email address to you, that's addressed to you, right? But here's the thing, and this I take on faith because the scientists have told me so, um, but I can't, uh, so I assert it is true, but only on uh, expert authority. You cannot tell what a new string of ones and zeros will do the first time you encounter it. It's only after it's executed, been <laughs> compiled, that and, and evoked on your system that you know that this is going to be your mother's cookie recipe, and this is going to be the attack vector system that wipes out uh, all the data on the New York Stock Exchange. And this is going to be the one that opens up the Hoover Dam and drowns everybody below it, right? If you can't tell in advance what's going to happen, how do you develop a defensive policy? Come back to my Air Force guys. Imagine that you couldn't tell whether it was a commercial jetliner filled with uh, 233 innocent civilians or a nuclear bomber filled with 233 nuclear bombs. You, you, you got a wickedly hard defensive problem because you don't know what to do with it. Now, that's only true for the first one. So if it goes forward and it executes, we can back figure it and figure out its that code. So how many of you have a virus, uh, uh, antivirus program? On All of those programs are built upon other people getting screwed. Bottom line, every one of those viruses effectively knocked out somebody uh, in some way, and then it got compiled and added to the list of things that we're worried about. Uh, so your antivirus is basically horribly taking advantage of other people's misfortunes. Uh, I hope that makes you feel proud of yourself. Um, but it's the reality of how we do, do it. So these ones and zeros cannot be distinguished. They lack distinction. And that's a fundamental problem because we cannot tell friend from foe. Uh, that's not good. Distributed and dynamic, last one. Uh, that's the pace of change idea, right? The, uh, the internet today is completely different than it was 10 years ago, and it's going to be different from the, from the network from 10 years from now. Everybody's on Facebook, yeah? Facebook just had its 11th anniversary. Uh, 11 years ago, there were zero people on Facebook. Today, there's more than a billion and a half people. If, China, if, if uh, Facebook were a country, the only places that would be bigger than that would be China and maybe India. Nobody's sure, right, because the exact numbers are indefinite. Think of that as a community of interconnected people that didn't exist 10 years ago. And I'll make you a prediction, <coughs> free of charge, Facebook won't exist in 10 years from now. It, it may, the name may still exist, right? But um, just like IBM still exists, but it doesn't make computers anymore. But the concept is going to be different. If I knew how, I'd invest money and get rich and stop having to come and do lectures like this. Um, <laughs> I, I wish I did. But the, dyna the dynamism and the distributed nature of it is really difficult because this is a world-girding system. With, you know, it started out built in America and got embedded kind of with American legal values. But now the 300 million Americans are less than you know, one per, uh, 10 percent of the people attached. And we're struggling to find a universal set of rule sets that everybody can agree on. And in a world like this, that's not easy to do. Um, in fact, I think it's Impossible. So, now let's change uh, the cyber threat. When I started, this was the saying that everybody repeated, right? 
The only thing that ever dies was a bunch of baby electrons. You say what you will about wiping out the New York Stock Exchange, but nobody was going to die. No human being would die. A lot of people would be very, very discomforted, a lot of collateral injury, but nobody was going to get killed. Not so today. Today, cyber means kill real people, not just baby electrons. This is kind of how I conceive of our threat, um, our threat pyramid, you know, what, what we're worried about. Uh, you know, at the bottom are things that happen a lot that don't kill people. Crime is endemic. How many of you have had uh, uh, to uh, personal information stolen and had to get a new credit card, reset a password, right? In America, it's about 35% of the, of the adult population has had an experience in the last five years. Uh, and that's about right. But that's not existential, right? It was a real pain in the ass. You had to do all this sort of thing. Maybe you lost 50 bucks because that was the limit of what was covered, but didn't really kill anyone. Likewise, with espionage, um, you know, both of the uh, military sort, like the, like the report in the, New York, in the Washington Post just the other day about a Chinese uh, uh, penetration of a naval contractor and the theft of classified information about the designs of, new, of, uh, of naval, uh, naval weaponry, uh, to industrial espionage uh, and the, the theft of intellectual property. Uh, but the ones that we're really worried about are up at the top, war, uh, and non-state actors actually creating physical damage. You know, the, the fear set here is that Al-Qaeda gets, you know, significant capabilities or, you know, fill in the blank with who you're most afraid of and, and give them capabilities. And then, of course, the ultimate possibility that at some point, if we get into a shooting war, uh, uh, it will be accompanied by cyber effects. The Russians have been become very good at that. All of their military operations now have uh, associated cyber uh, uh, effects that uh, disrupt command and control, uh, do information warfare on the, on the population, and, and spread propaganda around the world. Uh, we should remember that we're not the only players in the game. The pyramid that I built for you uh, is an American pyramid. Uh, and I know not all of you are Americans. Uh, so I add this. A lot of people see the information space as a space of warfare itself. Best example of this is the, is the Russian uh, influence operations on the election uh, of 2016, uh, you know, which has, I, I don't know exactly how much consequences, but a you know, true story. Uh, I was engaged in negotiations, uh, what were called Track 1.5 negotiations, with some Chinese uh, uh, interlocutors. And we were talking about our concepts of the threat and theirs. And one of them said to me, and he was not making it up, he said, uh, we sort of think that Facebook is an American plot to destabilize China. And your first reaction as an American is to sort of laugh at that, because the idea that Mark Zuckerberg is, is you know, is taking orders from Donald Trump or Barack Obama is kind of like, right, no. But then when you think about it, there's a, there's a real grain of reality to that, which is to say that you know, the information space of Facebook does have a tendency to destabilize expectations about uh, democracy and liberty in places where it's propagated. You know, American values change people's perceptions. And so from the Chinese perspective, that's a real threat. Uh, to uh, the stability of the, of the regime. So that's the way that I conceptualize the threat. All of that's been very theoretical. Yep, we're ready. Uh, let me give you a couple of examples of this in the real world, physical, uh, actual examples. This is the 
the show and tell video portion of it. So this first one is a diesel generator that makes electricity. Uh, and it uh, uses diesel fuel. It's not supposed to have white smoke. White smoke is bad. Uh, and actually, black smoke, even worse. Right? Um, so I first saw this, I personally first saw this when it was classified TSSCI and a whole bunch of other uh, U.S. government top secret classifications. Uh, it was done, it's a, the video of a test done by the, by the propeller beanie guys at the Idaho National Labs outside of Boise, Idaho. Nobody touched that diesel generator. They broke it using exclusively computer code in a, in a test called the Aurora test. Um, all of our, uh, almost all of our mechanical systems <clears throat> are operated by things known as SCADAs, or some people say SCADA. You say SCADA, let's call the whole thing off, right? Um, <laughs> okay, somebody got the joke. Uh, it's an American joke, I'm sorry. It's, a, it's an old movie, right? Um, so these SCADA systems stand for Supervisory Control and Data Acquisition Systems. And the thing about SCADAs is that they're stupid. Your computer is brilliant. It's basically an omnivore. You give it any program, and so long as it's written in the right code, it can process it. It can do Excel. It can do Microsoft. It can do Safari. You name it, it can do it. SCADA systems are idiots. They basically do like five things. If there's a SCADA system running the elevator, it's you know, up, down, stop, go, and report same to the bosses, right? Keep a track, right? The SCADA system here is start, stop, faster, slower, right? Report same to the bosses. What the brilliant guys at, at Idaho National Labs did was give it a, an instruction, go faster, go faster, go faster, go faster, go faster, go faster, 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 until it basically rolled, burned itself out by driving itself to death like that. Um, the reason this was classified top secret in the U.S. in 2006, I guess it was, is because basically every diesel generator in America was running uh, a SCADA system with this vulnerability in it. And we had no way to fix it. We didn't know what to do. So basically, somebody with a really evil mind could have shut off a lot of the electricity in the United States. The big decision that was eventually made was to go public with it, hence went to CNN, uh, right, and get the electric companies to start finding fixes to it. For one thing, taking their systems off of the internet for a while until they could fix it. Uh, but this was the first instance ever in which we saw physical damage created by uh, non-physical means, simply biological changes. You know, fast forward from there to say 2015, well, I'll skip over, fast forward from there to about 2010 when somebody, and the New York Times says it was the United States in, in conjunction with Israel, destroyed a bunch of uh, Iranian nuclear uh, uh, uranium processor plants at Natanz with a program called Stuxnet. Fast forward to 2015, and um, somebody, and we're, we, we think it was the Russians, turned off all the electricity in the eastern Ukraine for three days uh, without coming anywhere near it. Again, you know, seems to be for the obvious pur purpose of, of uh, uh, pushing the Ukrainians to accept the uh, loss of Crimea and the loss of eastern Ukraine by the Russians. Whatever it is, whoever it is, we have seen a progressive uh, step where we can see rare instances, so far very rare, of physical damage 
to actual systems simply by cyber means. Now, so far, life's been pretty good. As far as we know, all of these instances have been the work of nation states. And nation states, more or less, rational actors, right? They have different acts. What, you know, what China wants from the world is not what the US wants, and it's definitely not what North, and what North Korea wants is a little harder to understand. But you know, all the nations of the world kind of act with rationality. So we've not seen an escalatory um, uh, uh, upward mobility in this. You know, there are demonstrations like turning off Ukraine for three days and then turning it back on, or destroying one nuclear uh, uranium, uh, uranium production facility and nothing more. Uh, that's good. I mean, it's one of the things that we were worried about about five years ago was that the escalatory ladder would not have any off ramps, and it turns out it does. But imagine the next step. I see we have a couple of Australians in the room, right? So Queensland University, it's a, it's a, a, a big university in Australia. But Dr. Fu here, right, he's, he's a smart guy, he's a PhD, but he's not a Jedi Knight, right? This isn't magic. Uh, he's teaching these techniques to dozens of PhD students every year, all of whom go home. Um, most of them are good guys who go home with the, uh, uh, with the idea of making the wastewater treatment facility or the chemical plant safer. But we know of a certainty that some fraction of that, I don't know what fraction, are malicious actors who go home and are propagating this knowledge and type of technique uh, to people who mean the world ill, whether it's Al-Qaeda or um, you know, the Earth Liberation Front. Pick your, pick your uh, group. The problem here is that all of a sudden we're moving from a world in which these techniques are the unique province of nation states that have rationality to a world in which these techniques are no longer so and are being propagated to groups of non-state actors, many of whom have what you and I would all think of as irrational aims. Uh, you know, I mean, at, at their most extreme, they don't care if they die in the attempt to, uh, uh, to, to, uh, to change the world, uh, which seems to us fundamentally pretty irrational. So one of the things that is in the arc of, of, uh, of national security thinking is that in about five years, my guess, if it's 10, don't, you know, I'm, I, uh, we're going to see threats that aren't just from China, Russia, Brazil, Australia, wherever, uh, Israel, it's going to be threats from, you know, Al-Qaeda uh, or other groups of non-rational actors. That's really scary. Um, but even here, there's some hope, right? Which is to say that wastewater treatment facilities are 
and nuclear power plants, they're pretty well funded, uh, and they have defensive capabilities of their own. They're not completely defenseless to the world. The other trend that is happening in the threat stream is that all of a sudden, it's consumer goods that are at risk as well. Things like the elevator, um, David's medical device, or a car. I turned on the hazard lights, but I was still stuck in the right lane with no shoulder to escape on. So this was the Jeep Cherokee, a car of which there are, you know, <clears throat> X millions on the on the roads of the United States. Uh, and the two guys who were making fun of it uh, were hackers who had figured out how to break into the Jeep Cherokee and take control of the logical systems that ran its driving. And they turned off the accelerator. They could just as easily have made it turn right or turn left or turn the accelerator on so he was going 250 miles an hour. Um, they were wildly criticized for this because, of course, they didn't do this on a test track. They did it in real world, and the guy was on a highway and you know, quite literally could have died. He was a, he's a reporter for Wired magazine um, who uh, has said he'll never trust these guys again. What was the vulnerability of, of this? Uh, well, the Jeep manufacturers made two mistakes. The first one was they were cheap, so there was only one computer system on board. So the same system that ran the... Um, uh, all the entertainment and brought in your sat satellite uh, radio for XM radio, also ran the hydraulics. So the attack act vector was actually reversing the information stream on the satellite radio. And once they were inside, you know, just jumping over to the hydraulics. So separation of systems, which doubles the price because you've got to have two computer systems on board. And then the second was, you know, all of these, uh, all of these uh, Internet of Things devices are usually protected by a password. But the guys who made this one, uh, Texas Instruments, a pretty famous American uh, uh, company, uh, left behind their password for access for engineers, but the password was? Password and password. Not quite. <laughs> One, two, three, four, All five, right. six. Same <laughs> idea. Morons. Morons. Um, uh, Jeep Cherokee had to recall every, every one of their cars and reprogram them. Very expensive. But the reality of this is that you and I are increasingly using consumer goods that are tied to the network that are points of vulnerability. Medical devices, home security systems, cars, things that are actually life and death threatening. Um, you know, they are both vectors for, uh, 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 vectors for uh, personal attacks, but they're also vectors for kind of mass casualty events. Imagine, just as a hypothetical, that somebody were to put ransomware into uh, heart pumps, right, and say to you, I want a thousand Bitcoin, or I'm going to turn your heart pump off. And he said this to 10,000 people in America, or 100,000 people who have heart pumps, or in Brazil, or China, or Australia. That's, a, that, you know, that's very, very hard to achieve. Don't think it's coming tomorrow. But it's not unrealistic either. It's not outside the realm. Yes, sir? That ability, or do they have it, and are we stopping it? 
Well, there's more lectures to come, but we have seen it. Uh, for example, the entire city of Atlanta was shut down earlier this year with a ransomware attack that essentially shut down all city services uh, <coughs> to everybody. That was pay your taxes, pay your you know, uh, trafficking, ticketing. You know, so we are starting to see it. There was a WannaCry ransomware that cost mayors $300 million in damage. It, it basically grounded every boat um, that mask owns. Mask is the largest ship, I think it's the largest, maybe the second largest shipping line in the world. Dry dock for a week until they paid. Uh, so we're starting to see, we haven't seen personalized attacks, and I think the reason is because there's not a lot of real plus value in that. You know, killing you doesn't, I mean, unless you're the president of the United States, right, uh, you know, or, or the vice president, it's not such a value. So, so this is kind of less likely, but we've seen, uh, I mean, one example that is, we've seen a large uptick in, um, if you have one of those cars with an OnStar, uh, it's subject to theft, and we've seen a, a spike in thefts of OnStar cars because people can unlock the car and turn it on, right? That's what OnStar does. It turns on your car when you don't have a key. If, if the good guys can do it, the bad guys can do it. So that's kind of at the fuzz level where you and I haven't seen it. We haven't seen the ca catastrophic level yet. I were those first two examples, did they originate domestically or were those uh, the WannaCry one that was Maersk is almost certainly North Korea. The Atlanta ransomware, mm, the best guess is probably Ukraine, but, but that one is less certainly uh, attributable, <coughs> less well attributable. Um, uh, but, I mean, your point is actually well taken, which is, of course, that the single largest uh, vector of threat uh, to the world is American hackers. You know, we're, 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 we're not going to, they just don't tend to do Atlanta. Yes, <laughs> right. Uh, at least uh, not yet. Yes, sir, Joshua. If everything's one and zeros, how do you know that it's like Russia or how do you nail down? Uh, that's a great question. Um, I will give you the short, non-forensic computer scientist answer. Um, you, wa you watch baseball? I do. Right? So you know that uh, Max Scherzer has a great fastball and, uh, and Gio Gonzalez has a, has a, has a curveball. Right? Everybody has patterns. You know that the Patriots in football tend to run to the right instead of tend to the left. To left. What we do, uh, basically, is inference about attribution from repeated patterns of activity. Um, so, for example, uh, if you're really good at the forensics, you can see this, the, the signature of activity and say, that's a... Uh, uh, that's the uh, uh, golden panda group. Uh, anything that has a panda is, is, we think, Chinese. Anything that has a bear is, we think, uh, Russian. Anything that has an eagle is American. Um, yeah, that's, that's the way that we name these things. So people repeat their same patterns. Uh, one of the things, for example, that, that is very common is reusing command and control centers. If I'm a bad program, in order to know when to start, I have to talk to, a, to the boss back home, right? He has to be able to communicate to me and say, you're gonna start on July 1 at noon, right? So routinely, we ping out to command and control centers uh, at, and say, what should I do? And the boss says, nothing yet. And then I, I'll check in, in in a week, and I check in. So the identity command and control centers tend to be reused because they're relatively expensive and, and hard. So for example, uh, one of the reasons that we're almost certain that it was the Russians 
uh, behind some of the attacks on the DNC and, and the Hillary Clinton campaign is because they reused the same command and control centers that they had used for an attack on the Bundestag in Germany <coughs> six months earlier, right? Uh, is that phonyable? Absolutely, right? I could take over somebody else's command and control. I could be the, the Israelis you know, running a, 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 a false flag operation, take over the Russian thing, do the planting and, send, and pretend I'm the Russians. But that's very hard, and it also leaves tracks behind. Um, another reason, uh, I mean, I wasn't really going to talk about the election, but another reason that we were pretty sure about the election stuff is that when the data came back from the Russian theft, mostly through WikiLeaks, though, um, it had Russian metadata tags, right, opened in Moscow on June. Now, again, phonyable, right? Uh, but the answer to your question is it's like all intelligence analysis, right? Um, unless you have a human source that's in the room when Putin says, do this, right, it's all inference. Uh, and it's all about the strength of the inference. And, uh, you know, the, and, and it's, so it's concatenations of evidence. We get those two things and a couple more, and we feel much better about the attribution to the Russians. Uh, if it's just uh, uh, one thing, we don't, right? So, so that's the way of the world. Okay. Uh, I ended 12.15, right? Uh, okay, so how do we get inside? You've all seen this, right? Uh, before you get emails like this all the time, and I hope you know you're smart enough not to click on the here uh, to resolve the identity issue. I got this one, uh, uh, you know, two, two keys, the gmxx.com and the, and the click here um, were, were, were symbols. Um, if I, I gave it to some friends of mine who run a, what's called a sandbox, which is a virtual machine that doesn't actually touch the real world, and they ran it, and if I clicked on here, it would have opened up, um, uh, it would have implanted on my computer a, uh, a small program that would have turned off my firewall. And that's all the program would have done, but after turning off my firewall, I'd have been open to the world, naked as a japer, so to speak, and who knows what they would have done. My best guess is that they were just looking for, for financial data. But, I all, but because I do this, I get a lot of this stuff, some of it much more sophisticated, uh, from overseas sources who are interested in me personally for other reasons. So you're smart enough not to have clicked on that one. Would you have clicked on this one? Uh, this one went to the Dalai Lama. Uh, nice man, the Dalai Lama. <laughs> right? A man of peace. Who would want to hack the Dalai Lama? Well, well somebody did. This was um, a real... Uh, dot dot Microsoft Word uh, document. Uh, you know, he opened it up and it was a list of all the people who support the Dalai Lama in his uh, his repeated quest for independence from China, which maybe gives you a hint about who we think that the hacker was. Um, and you know, uh, Richard Gere was on there. Yeah, he's a famous American who supports the Dalai Lama, right? Uh, and it was a real world document. And the piece of malware in there was brand new. So it had never been seen, so it skated by the Dalai Lama's antivirus program and executed on his system. This was not a destructive system. It was a spy system, we'll skip that, uh, that actually did this. A Canadian group, I understand we've got some Canadians in here too. Uh, who's from Canada? Hi guys, sorry about it. <laughs> I apologize. Um, not that my apology counts, but sorry. Uh, but a Canadian group called the Information Warfare Office was retained by the Dalai Lama to, to backtrack this. And they did the next thing, which is they went from one command and control 
uh, people hop, right? So it's not just one often. So they went to the first one, and that, and they traced it back to the second, and then they traced it back to the third. This is a computer. This is not the Dalai Lama system. This was a system that they were looking over somebody's shoulder on Hainan Island off the coast of China, um, where, where the trail seemed to go cold. And this was the uh, RAT program. RAT stands for Remote Access Tool that could uh, turn on a keystroke logger uh, on the Dalai Lama's computers. Keystroke logger is something that records every keystroke that you type in. So your secret negotiating position with the Chinese, psh, not so secret anymore. Your bank account password, psh, not so bank account password anymore. Also turn on your webcam. This is why everybody that I know puts tape over their webcam, um, <laughs> because we can turn it on at a distance without turning off on the light. Turn on the microphone. So if this were resident in one of your computers right now, somebody in China or Russia or Brazil, wherever that particular program came from, could be taping everything. This is why, at least in the United States, if you go into a secure facility, you're no longer allowed to carry your passwords, I mean your, um, your phones, because I cannot, this is off, but I cannot guarantee that it is actually off. Um, it has every appearance of being off, and I put as much security on as I can, but I, if you ask me, is it 100% certain that this is off right now? My honest answer would be no. I'm pretty sure like in the 95 to 99% range, but 100 is beyond me. So this is the type of access tool that is used. Uh, if instead, instead of uh, an espionage program, you could use a destructive program, and all of a sudden, the Dalai Lama's files would be wiped out. Uh, so <coughs> part three, cyber conflict today. What, are we, what does all of this mean in terms of national security law and national security generally? In October 2012, the then U.S. Secretary of Defense, Leon Panetta, said, uh, we are facing a cyber Pearl Harbor. Uh, Pearl Harbor is a massive metaphor in the United States. I, I assume everybody gets it, right? So he was, he was threatening like a surprise destructive attack, right? Uh, now, that's pretty darn scary, right? He wasn't the first, though. In 1996, John Deutsch, who was then the, de the director of the CIA, said, we're facing an electronic Pearl Harbor. He didn't even say cyber because we didn't use that word back then. We were talking electronic. And the earliest one that I can think of is, uh, I can find, is a deputy assistant secretary of defense, which is kind of like four levels down, uh, named Wynne Schwartow, who predicted back in 1991 a digital Pearl Harbor. Now note that that's exactly when the Cray XMP1 supercomputer was bought. So, so we've gone an entire generation without actually experiencing Pearl Harbor. So that should give you some sense of the, you know, the kind of apocalyptic worldview about the threat, but also maybe give you some caution. Because I will tell you in absolute certainty, that at least as far as the public record is reflected, despite all the horrible picture that I've just spent an hour painting, no human being that we know of has ever died in a cyber attack yet. Now that could change tomorrow, and that's why, um, you know, why military uh, you know, planners are, are sort of freaked out. But more people have died from squirrel attacks <laughs> in the United States than from cyber attacks. And that, that's a true fact, right? <laughs> I, can, I got a whole slide I didn't bring with me about squirrel, squirrel attacks in the last 10 years, and there's something like 18 people dead, um, including a squirrel that actually dropped a transformer on a car, exploded the car, and the woman inside died. He, he chewed through the, he chewed through the, I, true story. So, so 
when you think about this threat stream, you know, even though I've, I've spent all this time talking about what the conflict might look like and death and destruction, I want to at least offer a slight caveat. Now, I make my money by scaring you to death, right? So I don't want to, yeah. And so do all of, all of the consultants that your, that your, your governments hire, <laughs> your, country, your, your, your companies hire. But uh, the reality is we haven't had, we've been predicting Pearl Harbor since 1991, so that's 18 years, 17 years? Yeah, it's a long time. No, 27 years, 27 years. Uh, that's a long time to be waiting for the Japanese planes to attack the Pearl Harbor uh, without it actually happening. So what we're really seeing is more in the nature of uh, cyber warfare between nation states on the espionage level. One example is, um, is the Chinese uh, economic espionage program that ended pretty much in, in 2015 with an agreement between President Obama and President Xi. Up until that time, the Chinese had been operating a pretty aggressive um, economic uh, espionage program that stole a lot of data and information from uh, the American, from various American sources. You know, if I had more time, I'd kind of go through all this. One of my favorites uh, was actually uh, this one, Shady Rat, uh, which targeted the International Olympic Committee and WADA, uh, the World Anti-Doping Agency. Uh, the idea was to find out who was testing positive for performance-enhancing drugs. Uh, presumably, uh, it would be an embarrassment if the uh, Number one Canadian finisher in the uh, in the figure skating had been tr had turned out to be using PEDS, right? Never, of course not. We're, we're too nice, but uh, you know that was the idea behind it. Um, we responded by indicting uh, five Chinese persons uh, who were um, uh, who were alleged to be part of this group, uh, Unit Six One Three Nine Eight, which was assessed by uh, American companies and American intelligence to be part of the People's Liberation Army. <coughs> they never came to trial. But the indictment seems to have been a, a, a significant factor in bringing um, uh, home to the Chinese that we really cared about this, that we, the Americans cared about this, more than just talking about it. And, uh, and it did result in this agreement, as I said, in 2015, which, by and large, uh, has been honored uh, on both sides, at least through all the public reports. Say. So I, I've long since lost access to top secret data that may contradict that. Uh, but that's a pretty good thing. The Chinese. Um, the allegations of Chinese espionage against a U.S. naval uh, contractor that came out just this past week, that's back to old-style espionage. I mean, you know, military production is a fair target, if you will, and it's different than stealing the design, uh, the bidding information on, a, on oil and gas systems or something like that, which, is, which seems to have gone mostly away. Uh, there was, for a long time, uh, a very significant penetration of America's military systems, um, mostly by the Chinese. We also saw some Russian stuff. These are a list of all the things that the Defense Science Board says were lost as part of that espionage. Uh, the, some of the designs of the F-35 fighter, if you've seen the J-22 from China, um, you, you look at it and you say, that looks awful familiar. Uh, you know, and, and we think we know the reason. The Americans think they know the reason. Uh, the designs for the V-22 killed Osprey, the Aegis missile system, the RC-135, which is an American uh, uh, radio and communication system, right? That's what RC stands for? Yeah? Okay, I'm, I'm looking at my Air Force guys. Uh, even worse, um, the, they, we lost the encryption key for the UAV video that was coming back from Pakistan 
And until we figured that out, uh, somebody was listening in on the video channels uh, for, the, for the Predator drones over Pakistan and Afghanistan. For a while, uh, IFF, my, my IFF stands for? Identification friend or foe. So American planes, when they're flying, send out a signal that says, I'm an American, and American missiles listening for that say, okay, I won't shoot you down. And somebody, in this case where we think it was actually the Russians, had that code for a while. So had we gone to war with Russia for a period of six months, the Russian planes would have been saying, I am an American fool. Yeah, and would have been immune to, uh, I know, really bad Russian. Sorry, it's getting, I've been going for an hour and 15. Uh, nano-structured metal, there you go. Uh, I'm going to skip America versus Iran, uh, except to note that we probably have more conflict with Iran, direct conflict, than with anybody else. This is the, um, this is the answer to your question. This is uh, the WannaCry uh, decryptor that, uh, that Maersk found on their systems that we're pretty sure was North Korea. You had to pay Bitcoin to get it. That was from their files. Uh, uh, this is the this is what it looked like when the North Koreans hacked Sony. Uh, the big red skull is really kind of evil, isn't it? Right, and uh, uh, we're pretty. The best assessment was that that was because Kim Jong Un was annoyed at the movie that Sony had put out, uh, uh, the bromance with uh, James Franco and Seth Rogen, uh, called the interview, in which at the end of the movie he gets blown up by a Stinger missile. Which, you know, if I were president of a country, I would be annoyed at as well. So he took them down. Um, we talked about the voting, so I'll, I'll keep that, and uh, I'll skip that for a second. Yeah, okay, I got two more slides, and then I'll get So where are we today? Modern conflict, one, it's got combined arms, right? The cyber portion of the military is often deployed in coordination with the, with the kinetic military, right? Uh, it usually threatens command and control other infrastructure. It's used in espionage commercial and, and national security, uh, Russia's penetration of the Bundestag, and maybe our elections as well. Um, it's, uh, it's PSYOPs and information operations. Uh, the Nemetsov botnet is a great story. Uh, uh, basically, Nemetsov was an opponent of Putin. Uh, in, the, in every place in the world except Russia, everybody's quite sure that the KGB killed him. Uh, in Russia, they think it was the United States because he used a, a, a Putin used a system of artificial bots on Twitter to create that message, and it reverberates around Twitterverse inside Russia. We can talk a little bit about how that works. Uh, demonstrations of force, right? If you, if I turn off your electric grid for three days, you'll listen to me next time. Um, mischief, uh, right? You know, the, Swe the Swedish telecom infrastructure was assaulted just last year and also taken offline for three days. Uh, what are some of the fundamental policy questions? And then I'll take your questions, because um, that's the end of my introduction. How big really is the risk? You know, as I said, nobody's died. So maybe we're making a whole mountain out of a molehill, and this is no different than criminality in the real world. I think it's more than that, but, uh, but I offer you know, the possibility that I could be wrong. Uh, second, what's the role of, of, a federal, of our federal government, or for those of you from other countries, your national governments? Should you take over cyberspace and protect it in Canada or Australia or Brazil or China? Well, um, you know, uh, should you regulate? Should you, instead of taking it over and being responsible for all the protection, pass a whole set of rules that tell the private sector how to protect itself? Um, I ask you to think about the nimbleness of your government and whether or not a rule set created by uh, notice and comment rulemaking, which is the American system, is effective or not. 
right? Uh, what is the deterrent effect? What should we threaten other people with so that they don't act against us? And how valuable is that when the actors are non-state actors or, or, or non-deterrable, irrational actors of one sort or another? Uh, is traditional international law even applicable? The, US, uh, uh, the uh, UN has been uh, uh, convening a group of government experts for the last 10 years. And they sort of came to an agreement uh, about four years ago that just was the statement, you know, international law applies. International uh, humanitarian law applies in cyberspace. But they've sort of backtracked on that. And when they got to discussing how it applies, uh, the talks collapsed about a year and a half ago. And so we're not even having that discussion anymore. Uh, so if, if we can't even agree what law applies, what sort of law, law does LOAC apply, right? Uh, because of private sector actors being enabled here, uh, in malicious actors from outside, what about private sector actors in acting in self-defense? This is a concept of hacking. Normally, battle space conflict is the domain of governments. U.S. versus Germany, World War II, right? Um, even though our State Department uh, seems not to remember that. Uh, uh, that sort of thing. Now, all of a sudden, it's Sony versus North Korea. And that changes the dynamic, because all of a sudden, Sony could start a war uh, without our permission. And then layered on top of that, we have all sorts of privacy and security issues that I haven't even begun to talk about, but I don't want to <clears throat> not talk about, not at least mention. You know, anonymity is a good thing, right? It, it, it's a bad thing because it hides malicious actors, but it's a good thing because it enables dis you know, the freedom of dissent uh, and, and the ability for people to act uh, without fear of government retribution in ways that enable themselves, right? Uh, they use encryption to that. On the other hand, there's a pervasiveness of surveillance now. So uh, those are, yeah, I hope that by doing this introduction, what I've done is given you a background in a space within which to think about these things. Uh, as you get to the next set of lectures, I will end with, yeah, I got a book on it. I got a, I got a video course on it. If, if uh, an hour and a half wasn't enough, there's 18 lectures in the video course. You can get nine hours of me. Um, but with that, we have about 10 minutes for questions before we all go to lunch. What do people want to know? Yes, Sir Patrick. Yes, maybe this is a question that makes no sense anymore, but who has control of or access to control of the internet to really dramatically block or change it? Almost nobody. The governance of the international, I mean, topically completely skipped, but the internet governance, the governance of the network itself is managed by two nonprofit organizations. One is called the IETF, the Internet Engineering Task Force. They're the people who define the protocols that everybody agrees to. So they're the ones who say packet size should be eight bits instead of 16 bits. They're the ones who say that you know, the header for an email message should have the two and then the from, not the from and then the two. Um, uh, they're basically engineers and they operate by consensus. The other critical international function <coughs> is the creation of the domain name system, the system that allows this place to be virginia.edu. And that's run by a group called ICANN, the Internet Corporation of Assigned Names and Numbers. And they run a basically an auction system that allows the creation of top-level domains. So uh, besides .edu, .org, and .gov, and .com that you and I know, you know there's everything from .XXX for pornography uh, <coughs> to um, to uh, dot Berlin for things relating to 
the city of Berlin. Uh, and, uh, <clears throat> and those are really the only two places where a kind of globalized uh, uh, rule set is happening. And the reason that is is mostly because we can't get agreement for anything much more. Everybody agrees we need addressing rules and somebody to keep the address book. And that's what these two things are. And that's about it. Uh, there's another organization, the ITU, the International Telecommunications Union, which is a part of the UN, though it predates the UN because it comes from the telegraph, um, where it's kind of nation state, one nation, one vote sort of thing. And they've been trying to, I will characterize it as horn in, uh, on, <coughs> on network governance and make it a nation, nation state thing. That, that's back to my, my model of nations kind of realizing they need control. So far, uh, they've been wildly unsuccessful, at least in part because there's this dissonance about what the rule sh set should be. So nobody wants to trust the ITU to, to take it over. That help? Marco I, and then Mark? I can't lose control of the Congress Department. Up until uh, the two years ago. Yeah, the country was not extended at some point under the Obama administration. Right. The I can well, the reason I the, the naming function was originally controlled actually by a guy named John Postle. He's one of the originators and inventors of the network, right? And he kept the list of who had what domain name on three by five cards in his office. Uh, I, it's really the coolest thing. Um, so then in 1999, when it started to get commercialized, and we went from uh, um, only, uh, only uh, educational institutions to people marketing this stuff, uh, the US government transitioned this to ICANN, which was uh, a nonprofit corporation that operated under a, a contract to the US Department of Commerce. The degree of US government control of ICANN is subject to some historical dispute. I would characterize it as very light touch um, with very little. Others thought it was more intrusive. Leaving that history aside, under the Obama administration, they completed the transition. And ICANN is now a completely independent uh, legal entity, has no contacts at all that I know of with the government, except to the extent that it has contacts with every government in the world. Um, so you know, uh, Americans, if you want to, in the room, if you want to feel a little proud of at least one thing your government has been doing, in the last 20 years, we just gave away the, you know, in the, over the course of 20 years, we gave away the internet, uh, know, or at least the addressing function, without any money. I don't know if it was a good thing. Well, it may not have been, but it, but it was certainly a, a very um, uh, self-abnegating yeah, uh, for the government. I, I sort of am with you. I don't think that we should have done it, but that, that water over the bridge and you know, policy debates from two years ago. Mark. Thank you. Yeah. The real question I'm getting at is whose responsibility is it to protect the data going to and from? So I was speaking to a colleague of mine. Um, the majority of papers that are coming out on this field are really saying, hey, the law firms need to boost their encryption and their data, et cetera, et cetera. However, I think that you have, we have to agree that the communication systems are ubiquitous. We're almost required to Up one. Right, exactly. So we know that law firms are a target, but you know, and, and 
specific law firms with patent data, et cetera, might have a higher responsibility? Cravat, Swain, and Moore, the largest law firm in New York City, got hit last year. Maybe it's two years ago by now, and lost gigabytes of data of confidential client information. Uh, my answer is, is as follows. The de jure answer is the one that everybody says. Lawyers have that responsibility. The Code of Ethics, American Code of Ethics, gives you that responsibility, and often substantive state law gives you that, that responsibility as well. Uh, on the other hand, unencrypted communication systems are, as you say, ubiquitous, and, um, no, and <coughs> clients don't understand. So what I do, personally, and what I recommend to all my clients, so this is the advice that you would pay me mm, hundreds of dollars for if you, if you want to. Uh, happy to come to your law firm, Mark, if you want. Um, is uh, transparency and client choice. So in my engagement with them, there's a separate sheet of paper that says, you know, we need to decide how we're going to communicate. Uh, I have the I personally have the capability to use the following six systems, all of which are very good encryption systems, ranging from WhatsApp for encrypted uh, uh, text communication to pretty good privacy for encrypted email. To yeah, I, I, I list them all out. If you want to use these, I will show you how, right? Without cost, cost-free, I will, I will teach you how to do this. If you choose not to, sign here. And if we lose it, your problem. <laughs> you know, that, that's my methodology. So transparency, offering them the opportunity, and, and not charging them for learning how to help me fulfill my ethical obligations to them. That's, that's my three-part test. Yes. Uh, you want to follow up? As a quick follow-up, okay, uh, a comment you. was made by a cyber expert in uh, the Bar Leadership Conference that this would move towards public utilities format uh, in the United States, that cybersecurity as a whole. Do you have any comments or thoughts on that? I think that it's highly unlikely, because okay. the idea of, a, of cybersecurity as a public utility is an idea of government control, essentially, or regulatory control. And I think that the zeitgeist in America right now is very much anti-governmental intrusion. I mean, to put it the most fundamental way, um, you remember that thing with the Dalai Lama, right? That was a list of everybody who was a supporter of the Dalai Lama. That's a political document, right, of who's his supporter. And if you want to just translate it, make it a list of everybody who's contributed to the Democratic Party or who's a member of the... Uh, National Abortion Rights Action League, or pick your, your political valence in, in your home country, right? In America, we would never, ever, ever let the government have that list. There's actually a Supreme Court case on it called NAACP versus uh, Alabama, uh, which, was a, uh, uh, which was a story about the Alabama trying to suppress the civil rights movement. And 9 nothing, the court said, that's course free speech. You don't, government, get it. So we would never let the government in there. So, but that's where the malware was. So if, unless you let the government see everything on the network, and that means everything, you can't protect the network. And we, at least in the U.S., are never going to let the U.S. the government see everything on the network. That's my prediction. Uh, who? Hugh? Hugh. Sorry. Um, who? Hugh? Following on the point, um, a lot of the threat vectors you described earlier are actually created within the private sector. And I suspect a lot of less great and certainly less timely with building in security and robustness features. Um, 
This is something where the government will be invited to defend or blame for failing to defend if and when that Pearl Harbor event occurs. Now, I know there are information sharing and analysis centers for various industries. My industry is in one. Uh, what do you think the government could do without crossing any of those lines that is not yet being done, not yet fully developed? What, what can we do to make um, our private sector companies better able to <coughs> prevent those threat vectors from well, um, traditionally, economics tells us that there are four kinds of ways that government can move behavior. Uh, regulation, direct regulation, so they can tell you what to do. That's not very nimble. Um, there's a soft version of that, which is kind of standard setting, which is where we are right now. NIST, National Institute for Standards and Technology in the U.S. has a, a cybersecurity framework, and lots of other people are kind of putting out best practices. Uh, tax. Uh, and it's converse of subsidy, right? You know, tax bad behavior or, or subsidize good behavior. Or um, my personal prediction is uh, liability, that we're going to develop a, a regime in which people have to pay. Uh, what industry are you with? Banking. Banking. So it, uh, all of a sudden you're going to get to. liability. What? We know liability. Right. You, you know liability, and you're going to have more of it if you lose people's money. Um, <clears throat> you know, same with the electric grid or something like that. We are just at the cusp of that. I know of only a couple of cases in which uh, 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 one's a bank, the other one was a credit card uh, uh, issuer, have been forced to pay consequential damages to third parties. Um, so it's very rare still. Uh, in order for it to really work, we need to be able to measure cyber risk, which we can't right now. I can't tell you that your system is more secure than Janine's. Um, there's no absolute metric. I want, uh, it's my big business idea is to create the Rosenzweig number, give you a seven and you a nine, so that your insurance is more expensive than hers. Um, I just don't know how to do that. So, <laughs> but, but, but we do know that some industries are better generally at this than others. We, we do, but all of that is ex post, right, because we see lower incidences of failure. We still haven't got an ex ante measurement for, well, you know, if you make this change from here to here, you'll improve your security by this measurable amount that justifies this business investment, right? This, this consequential business investment. It's going to be a very hard thing. If we get to liability, we'll get uh, insurance, uh, risk rating, and cost. And you know, that, that's, I think, more likely than hard regulation for many of the same reasons I just said to Mark. Uh, I got time for one more, Bob, before we go to lunch? Or no? One more? Ramon. Ramon. Uh, so speak very quickly. Yes. <laughs> so the, there's a new kid on the block. is called blockchain management. Blockchain called what? Blockchain technology. Blockchain, yes. Which is utilized in various uh, governance mechanism and which is used as eliminating human factor when it comes to the authentication and uh, promoted as a decentralization of storage capacity. So what is your comment on that? And uh, a threat. Now, uh, the, the math behind blockchain is elegant. The implementation is terrible. Right, uh, so far, not ready for prime time. Costs too much, too slow, uh, too expensive in terms of the energy costs. Um, I think that in the end, I had, a, I, I was at, um, I was talking to a guy from RSA, the biggest encryption company in the United States, and he said blockchain will be great for authentication and only and indelible records, and that's it. So uh, think uh, real estate records, right, where you have to know. Who, who owned this piece of land for the last 10 years? Or, um, or uh, you know, a contract between you and me that cannot be repudiated. 
We'll use blockchain for that. But the rest of it, very, very hard, very complex, not well built right now. Um, the endpoints are extremely vulnerable. Mount Gox lost X billion dollars worth of Bitcoin and, and you know, Syriatum. So uh, uh, my, my view is, uh, a friend of mine once said, um, is there anybody from Brazil here? A friend of mine once said that Brazil has been the country of the future for the last 10 years or 20 years. I don't mean to be insulted, but I think blockchain is the technology of the future, and it will stay the technology of the future for the next 20 years. <laughs> uh, with that, I thank you. I, I am going to grab a bite at lunch, so if you have more questions, I'm happy to